The Monday morning commute in question. All SkyTrain service could be shut down, including the bus service. Potential for a full-scale transit strike if last-minute talks fail. More allegations of patient dumping. People at the bus stop screaming and begging for help. A second person comes forward with concerns about discharged patients at a BC hospital. A foul odor in the air. We didn't know what it was. I said it smells like tar out here. What was behind the strange smell that blanketed part of Metro Vancouver? You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thank you for joining us. Still no word on negotiations between unionized supervisors and the Coast Mountain Bus Company. The two sides are in mediation with a 3 a.m. deadline for a full strike and word today that more than bus service could be affected by job action. Our Grace Key is following the negotiations and joins us with the latest. Grace. Yeah, not just sea uh, buses and buses when everyone wakes up tomorrow morning, but the possibility at least of West Coast Express and SkyTrain. And at least one of those unions has already told its members about the possibility, adding that they will honor the picket line. QP 4500 has made an application to the Labor Relations Board. The application refers to a TransLink website that redirects passengers to other services such as SkyTrain, Canada Line and West Coast Express. The website also mentions some changes including lifting restriction times for bikes on the Expo and Millennium SkyTrain lines. The union is arguing that this is mitigating negative impacts from a lawful strike and so the union is entitled to picket at or near places where allies perform work or furnish services for the benefit of the struck employer. QP 7000 represents Expo and Millennium Line workers and says members will honour the picket lines at SkyTrain facilities. For Coast Mountain Bus to come out saying that this strike isn't impacting service is outright, outright a lie to the passengers that use this service day in and day out. They've had two weeks to come to the table and talk to the union, but ultimately all they've done is hired a PR firm to blame the union on, on this strike when they haven't come back to the table at all since they've served their 72 hours notice almost two weeks ago. Both sides have been meeting with a mediator. If a decision isn't reached soon, buses and sea buses will be shut down as of 3 a.m. Monday morning for 48 hours. And if the Labor Relations Board agrees to the application, that will include SkyTrain with more than 400,000 riders a day. If the strike continues, the province really needs to step in to ensure that the transit uh, is labeled as a critical service. We really need to ensure that we have a transportation system that we can rely on. And it is transportation that drives the economy in addition to education. Grace, do we know when we can expect a decision from the Labor Relations Board and what's been the reaction of TransLink? Yeah, we know that the union did request a hearing uh, this afternoon. Now, from what we understand, a hearing has not been scheduled today. Now, Translate did say that as far as they know, that uh, all the SkyTrain and West Coast Express will operate tomorrow as normal. Uh, they did add that at this time, the union could really only legally picket bus and sea bus. Grace Key reporting live for us in Vancouver tonight. Grace, thank you. 
A follow up now to a story we reported on last night's news hour. Allegations patients are being discharged to a bench outside Vancouver General Hospital. Tonight, a second person has come forward to denounce the practice. As Kristen Robinson reports, a Victoria resident says she's witnessed the same practice outside the local hospital. It's absolutely horrific that people are left here. Juliana, who does not want her last name used for safety reasons, says in the three plus years she's lived across from Royal Jubilee Hospital Emergency, seeing security officers leaving patients at this bus stop is a regular occurrence. A lot of people would be begging for help when they were left at the bus stop, obviously in a lot of pain or mental anguish. Stand up. Often the individuals are in distress, she says, and police are called to deal with them. Ready? It seems like the discharge plan is just to bring people to a bus stop and have the police take care of it. Juliana coming forward after another BC resident shared concerns about seeing security escorting patients from Vancouver General Hospital to a bench across the street dozens of times in recent years. It's being used as a people dodge and uh, just left there to, to fend for themselves sometimes in not much more than the hospital gown. There are some opportunities here where we can do some things better. VGH is currently reviewing its discharge planning procedures. How would you feel if your family member was discharged to a bench across the street from VGH? So I would not say that this happens regularly. Um, we do have processes in place and we do have teams in place to help with discharging patients and families um, safely and making sure that it's collaborative and compassionate. Um, in some situations, that discharge plan is not accepted by patients um, and um, we cannot hold patients in the hospital. One year ago, Alberta Health Services partnered with an Edmonton Wellness Centre to offer discharged emergency patients experiencing homelessness a safe place to recover and work towards permanent housing with the support of community-based services. It's never been done in Canada and I think it'll set a new standard. I'm honestly disgusted that there's no plan for patients who are discharged who have nowhere to go. BC's health minister will address the patient dumping allegations Monday. Kristen Robinson, Global News. Tens of thousands of people woke up to a foul stench in the air this morning in Burnaby and Vancouver. An acrid smell like burning plastic or creosote. And while we now know where the odor came from, we still don't know what it was. Julia Foy has the story. For residents of Burnaby North, a bad smell caught their attention early Sunday morning. We didn't know what it was. I said it smells like tar out here and that was it. Nobody knew. Burnt rubber sort of smells. Smell like almost like chemical. They weren't alone. Global News started getting emails from people as far away as the downtown east side and Kitsilano in Vancouver, complaining of a terrible odor in the air. Then came the alarms. The sirens, that was the one thing I did hear were sirens. Around 7.30 a.m., Burnaby Fire was racing to the Parkland Refinery after the company reported that during a startup process, something was wrong and a strong burning odor was released. Inside that unit, uh, there's a stack, and that stack is for burning off of combustion. So, in essence, there will always be a fire there, how great it is, and to what scope uh, is managed very closely. Um, when that got to a place that they weren't comfortable with, they just shut it down. 
Almost a dozen fire trucks, ambulances and emergency vehicles were parked here beside Confederation Park for most of Sunday. And yet a number of residents out walking the dog didn't have any idea what was going on in their neighborhood. We just walked past that. I just went on Twitter and just searched Burnaby and there was someone made a posting saying they're recommending people to go inside and close their windows. Sunday afternoon, Metro Vancouver released a statement which reads, Metro Vancouver has received over 100 odor complaints from Vancouver and Burnaby. If members of the public smell this odor, they can move indoors, close windows, doors and air intakes to reduce their exposure. The fire chief says they've determined it was not a toxic release. We had uh, no hazardous materials, no um, materials or products that we could find harmful to the community at all. But for a member of the Parkland Community Advisory Panel, the messaging was missing when they needed it. I'm thankful that no one was hurt, um, but I still want to know what was that fire and why wasn't there more information. The refinery is currently shut down until an investigation is complete. Julia Foy, Global News. The Integrated Homicide Investigation Team has released the name of the man shot yesterday evening at a busy shopping centre in Abbotsford. 25-year-old Amrit Paul Saran was found dead inside a vehicle. He was killed just before 6 p.m. in the Best Buy parking lot at Seven Oaks Shopping Centre. Shortly after, police were notified of a burning vehicle in the 2900 block of Township Line Road. Investigators are trying to figure out if the two scenes are linked. I hit believe Saran was targeted and they're naming him as a way to further the investigation. Anyone with information on Saturday shooting is asked to contact IHIT. The utter disregard to public safety demonstrated by the perpetrators of this act is enormous. It goes without saying that the potential to have collateral damage uh, Victims that have no relation to any sort of violence or crime be affected by this or be harmed by this. The safety concern that we have surrounding this is immense. Almost two years after a deadly fire at a Gastown SRO, we could learn more about the tragedy. A coroner's inquest into the two deaths at the Winters Hotel fire begins tomorrow. And the proposal for a new mine that would put BC on the map when it comes to valuable earth metals. Those stories coming up. Ticton Search and Rescue simulated a real-life avalanche rescue this weekend. As Victoria Famia reports, Avalanche Canada is warning changes to the snowpack could increase avalanche risk. It's training that's crucial this time of year. Uh, what we were practicing was uh, safe travel practices in avalanche terrain. Um, avalanche search and rescue techniques and first aid and then transporting uh, injured subjects in, uh, in the mountains in winter. Penticton Search and Rescue simulated a real-life avalanche response, searching for and recovering three people. The way they were set up presented uh, unique challenges to the team. Uh, in their search techniques with their transceivers. Uh, so it gave them a little bit of challenge in that. And then uh, one of the subjects was injured and it required them to be evacuated. According to Avalanche Canada, the recent dump of snow and the extreme temperatures followed by a warm-up is causing an unstable snowpack, bringing the danger risk in the alpine areas of the Okanagan to considerable. Well, conditions are touchy and we do have um, 
elevated uh, avalanche danger. And a reminder from Avalanche Canada of just how quickly an avalanche can travel. Uh, they do uh, can travel up to 200 kilometers an hour. And so the survival curve, if you're buried in an avalanche, is quite low. Like uh, there's a critical window within 10 minutes. And so it's essential to have the, the essential gear so that you can perform a self-rescue. And as well, um, having the training. When heading out into the backcountry, there are tips to keep in mind. The basics, like know the area of your travel. You can check avalanche conditions um, with Avalanche Canada. Uh, advise others to, so they know where you're going. Know your limits. Uh, make sure you have like an avalanche uh, survival training course uh, under your belt. And another thing to keep in mind, an avalanche can be triggered just by traveling on foot. So it's best to be prepared. Victoria Famia, Global News. A coroner's inquest into the deaths of two residents at the Winters Hotel in Vancouver is set for Monday. The downtown Vancouver SRO went down in flames in April of 2022, killing 63-year-old Marianne Garlow and 53-year-old Dennis Gay. More than 70 people were displaced from the Gastown Heritage Building, which was torn down shortly after. Vancouver Fire and Rescue Services previously indicated the cause of the blaze was accidental and was due to unattended candles left burning in a second floor unit. A proposed mine could make BC a global player in rare earth elements, with an indigenous nation taking a stake in its development north of Prince George. The McLeod Lake Indian Band signed on to the Wichita project this week. We get the story from CKPG News. A new mining project in northern B.C. is in the works as the McLeod Lake Indian Band and Defence Metals Corp. announced their partnership for the Wichita Project, a rare earth elements project east of Bear Lake. The band purchased an equity stake in Defence Metals and Chief Harley Chinji is looking forward to the opportunities that the project can provide. It uh, solidifies the project in terms of our participation in the environmental assessment as well as the, the um, economic opportunities that are going to be coming, flowing from that, so I think the opportunity is going to be good for the nation. Rare earth elements are used in components of many devices such as smartphones, computers, TVs and the batteries of hybrid and electric cars. This project could end up annually producing as much as 10% of global production of rare earth elements. It's really important and instrumental in all of our day-to-day -day lives and devices, so uh, this is important. It represents 10% of global production, and I think we really have to uh, take heed of that and protect it. The project has been years in the making, but there is still a long way to go before a mine can open. We're due to finish pre-feasibility in April. Uh, we'll publish a report hopefully by June, and then we'll work into fee feasibility over the next year uh, to a bankable feasibility study. Defense Metals is hoping that once a report is released in June, that permitting will come soon after. We anxiously anticipate that report coming out in June, and we're hoping that helps us in the permitting uh, process and will cut down on times. The precedent that has now been set by McLeod Lake and Defense Metals is something that the minister hopes to see more of. To see a company and a First Nation proactively work together to set out the terms of their agreement and how they're going to work together before they've even applied for an environmental assessment or gone into the development process and, and permitting stages is really important and it's exactly what we hope to see and I know we'll see more of in the future. Adam Burles, CKPG News. Still to come, a deadly attack in a Russian-controlled part of Ukraine as both sides blaming each other. Russia saying Ukraine is responsible for the shelling of a market that killed 27 people. 
And then there were two. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis drops out of the Republican presidential race, putting his support behind Donald Trump. The Republican race to the White House has effectively become a two-person contest after Florida Governor Ron DeSantis suspended his campaign on Sunday, less than two days before the New Hampshire primary. He's thrown his weight behind Donald Trump, which could further solidify the frontrunner's position. Reggie Cicchini reports. The writing on the wall has been obvious for weeks that this really seems to be Donald Trump's race to lose, and that became more apparent on Sunday when Ron DeSantis suspended his campaign following a distant second-place finish in Iowa and a looming third-place finish here in New Hampshire. It's clear to me that a majority of Republican primary voters want to give Donald Trump another chance. He has my endorsement because we can't go back to the old Republican guard of yesteryear, a repackaged form of warmed-over corporatism that Nikki Haley represents. After peaking early, DeSantis struggled to gain national momentum with some political experts saying he leaned too much into being like Donald Trump rather than seeking to be an alternative. The question now is how his support for Trump could damage Nikki Haley's campaign. She has invested heavily in New Hampshire, courting the state's independent and moderate voters. There's even been a bid to have Democrats temporarily register as Republicans to vote for her. So a loss on Tuesday could spell the end. I think she needs to reset expectations. And by that, I mean surprise in New Hampshire and make people think again about the possibility that she could be the nominee. Nikki Haley insists that only she can beat Joe Biden, pointing to his 2020 loss and his role in subsequent GOP losses. But even a close loss to Trump this coming Tuesday could result in her donors heading for the exit before the next primary in her home state of South Carolina. Now, Ron DeSantis will remain on the ballot here in New Hampshire solely because of timing, but it's not expected to have an impact on the race. As for Donald Trump, he's expected to split his time between here and New York on Monday as he makes another court appearance. His legal matters have now fully become entwined in the campaign, but it highlights how the support that he gets from his base outweighs the appeal of his challengers. Reggie Cicchini, Global News, Manchester, New Hampshire. Russia is blaming Ukrainian shelling for the deaths of 27 people in the Russian-controlled city of Donetsk in eastern Ukraine. Global News cannot verify Russia's claims and Kyiv has not commented on the incident. It comes on the same day as a suspected Ukrainian drone attack on a Russian gas export facility near St. Petersburg. Our Europe correspondent Redmond Shannon reports and a warning that some viewers may find images in this report upsetting. Carnage at a Sunday morning market in Donetsk City. This man says when he arrived at the scene, he found his wife dead at her market stall. The Russian-backed governor of Donetsk region says Ukraine is to blame. Kyiv has not commented. But in a video statement, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said Russia shelled more than 100 locations in Ukraine on Sunday alone. Russia's foreign ministry called the Donetsk attack a barbaric act of terrorism by Ukraine and said it was done with the use of weapons supplied by the West. Donetsk is close to the front lines, but has effectively been under Moscow's control since it was seized by Russian-backed separatists a decade ago. Thousands died in the region in the years after 2014. But since Moscow's 2022 invasion, the vast majority of civilian deaths in Ukraine have been caused by Russian attacks. It'll need to be established, you know, where the shelling came from. And the question is, you know, was this a shell intended for a military target? Was it part of the crossfire? 
on the front lines with the Russians. If it is shown Ukrainian shells from the West killed these people, it may hinder Zelensky's pleas for more military aid. We've got politics being played by Republicans in the United States, but I don't think they'll use this incident. They're, they're blackmailing aid to Ukraine because they want to get draconian measures on border security passed. Also on Sunday, a suspected Ukrainian drone attack at this gas export facility near Russia's second largest city of St. Petersburg. It's a thousand kilometers from Ukraine and the second such attack attempted in that region in the past week. Redmond Channel Global News, London. Protests happening across Canada, including here in Vancouver, demanding action against the Taliban. Demonstrators say that since the Taliban took control of Afghanistan three years ago, the Hazaras, an ethnic minority group, have been victims of genocidal action. Carolyn Curry de Castillo reports. As a female journalist in Afghanistan, Sarah Turgan's decision to flee her country when the Taliban took over two and a half years ago was a matter of life and death. She's in Calgary now, but her parents and sister, who are all doctors, are still there. Her sister has been forced by the Taliban to leave her home in Kabul and wear a burqa or face death. Taliban asked her, if you don't go back to work in the rural area where there is no doctor, and uh, uh, if you don't go there, we will kill you guys. Members of Calgary's Hazara community gathered to draw attention to what's happening in Afghanistan. Refugees talking about the inhumane treatment Hazara women and girls are allegedly facing with arrests and kidnappings. They say the historical policy of forced migration has been reinstated under the Taliban. Barat Banish says genocidal action is happening. His two brothers were imprisoned for six months by the Taliban. They are vulnerable and the Taliban come and, and, and check them, you know, uh, to the custody or kill them. Uh, it's, it's very, the situation is very bad. For Canadians who spent years in Afghanistan helping promote education, the current situation is heartbreaking. I'm saddened and I love those people dearly. Bernie Potvan worked on a project collaborating with the Afghan Ministry of Education. Tim Goddard was overseeing the project. His daughter, Captain Nicola Goddard, was killed while serving in Afghanistan. Potvan says it seems the Hazaran people have been forgotten. What they've suffered, and going back to the late 1800s, you know, we began there with, with the, essentially what was the genocide, and it's never stopped. And now it's free reign for the Taliban to do what they want with these, with these people. Last week, Human Rights Watch said the Taliban have intensified their crackdown on human rights, particularly the rights of women and girls. Carolyn Curry de Castillo, Global News. After the break, Mark's here with the forecast and work continues in Stanley Park. Tens of thousands of damaged trees are being removed. There were traffic disruptions today and more are on the way. Crews were back at it again this weekend along the Stanley Park Causeway as they continue urgent tree removal work. The causeway was down to one lane in each direction to allow crews to knock down trees affected by the hemlock looper moth infestation. The Vancouver Park Board began work to remove the more than 160,000 trees that were compromised by the tree-killing moths. The work is expected to continue next Saturday with the full closure of the causeway for part of Sunday morning. Crews there had to work in the rain, but it was mild out. With more, we're joined by Chief Meteorologist Mark Madriga. 
Well, thanks very much, Travis. And uh, really the forecast moving forward through this week and into next weekend and probably the week after, at least as far as I can see, is mild air. And that will continue to accelerate the snow melt that's uh, with the snow on the ground the last while here in the lower mainland, for example. And as I take you through tonight and into tomorrow, uh, mostly wet. I mean, there'll be some lulls in the rain. Overnight temperature at about five or so, maybe six and a high of seven or so for Monday. So staying mild. Uh, seven was the high for uh, today. 15 the record back in 1981. Wow. Double digits. We may get to double digits way down the road. We'll see how we do a little feel of spring, but certainly in the short term from the south, we'll continue to have these weather systems slide in uh, with rain more on than off is how I see it for the next few days. That'll translate into some flurries in the mornings, especially with a few afternoon showers in the valleys through the southern interior. Uh, nothing huge in there, but a little bit of precipitation, no doubt about it. And for the south coast, again, I'm into Tuesday where uh, we'll probably stay on the wet side and mild too. So here's rainfall total uh, into overnight. I just want to show this as we add up the numbers and a lot of our charts are showing not exceptionally heavy rain, but certainly some significance to the rain as we total up amounts for the south coast between uh, say now and into Tuesday morning and then even more later next week. Here's the north coast. The rain will continue. This is the low than the high for Monday. Uh, Prince Rupert up to five, eight for Sandspit. Still near zero with snow inland of the north coast and we'll get into uh, maybe a break or two, a couple flurries for the uh, central interior of the Caribou and high still below freezing. There's Williams Lake, a high of minus two for Monday. Osuius at six. We have two for Kelowna. Again, some flurries, then the odd shower mixed in in the afternoon for the uh, Thompson Okanagan regions, the Kootenai country, a little bit more snow, a few centimeters on Monday. The south coast, I see really rain, wetness, as we have periods of rain for a few days, kind of a whole hum forecast, but it's okay for some because that'll help with the snow melt. There's the week ahead periods of rain and I go beyond there, uh, Travis, with the uh, forecast long term, the next 10 days staying mild. There you go. Okay, thanks, Mark. And we're joined by Barry now. There's some great NFL playoff action yeah, today. So they're playing again in Buffalo, where, of course, last week was the snowstorm. It's still freezing cold, but the, the football has been excellent. Taylor Swift is there because the, uh, the Chiefs are there. She's got a lot of camera time, which is shocking to me. No, it's not. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's been a great go uh, ball game. They're still going. We'll have highlights of that. Super Bowl game in Detroit as well between the Lions and Buccaneers. And Corey Perry has a new home. We'll tell you where he's going to be playing the rest of the NHL season. That's coming up. A classic tease. That's what I, that's what I do. I've been told I'm a tease. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. Thanks, maybe, Barry. Maybe not. <laughs> All right. Well, when the weather isn't so great, it can be easy to stay inside and watch TV, maybe football, or turn on the tablet. But after the break, we'll show you the initiative that's got families putting the devices down to engage in a more hands-on way. Kids can spend an average of seven hours a day watching or using screens. This according to Active Healthy Kids Canada and Participation. So this week, the Project Literacy Society is teaming up with Interior Savings for the 10th annual Unplug and Play Week with a focus on getting families to put down their devices and spend some time together. Playtime is fun time. And Unplug and Play Week is a reminder for kids and families that fun doesn't have to involve a phone, a tablet, or a TV screen. 
In the last decade, we've seen uh, a huge increase in the amount of online screen time for education uh, and for just playtime. So I think it is more important, and I think uh, this is a great reminder of how much fun you can have uh, outside from playing a video game or, uh, or engaging online on social media. The kickoff event held at the Parkinson Rec Centre. All sorts of local organizations are involved in setting up crafts, learning stations, live entertainment, and an indoor playground. It's a good break, especially lately with the weather was really cold and extreme, and for us, we are new to Canada. So it's a bit, so they were spending lots of time on TV, but today I said, okay, let's switch off and just leave the house. All of the family activities planned for Unplug and Play Week are free of charge, giving every kid the chance to find the kind of play that suits them best. Well, we just did the sport plays and we were just about to go over there in a place where there's cotton balls. Found something really fun. Um, it's probably the optical course because it was very fun and we had to go like very fast. And this is the hardest one, this is the hardest one. I don't know why I do this though, because when I do it, nobody applauds to me anyway. And be reminded that simple pleasures can induce fits of laughter. Alright. Here we go, two shoes, up in the air, watch. Ha! And look how many families are here, so it's a great testament to really pulling everyone out in the community. Other activities this week include free skating, science experiments, and a football obstacle course. Thompson Rivers University Student Union is offering swimming lessons to international students who may not have grown up around large bodies of water. As Michael Reeve of CFJC News reports, the program was conceived after the drowning deaths of two international students in the past five years in the Kamloops area and also need uh, at least uh, learn swimming that I can save my life. <laughs> swimming is a life skill that many in Canada take for granted. With picturesque lakes and rivers throughout the Thompson region, Trusu has partnered with the city to ensure students from around the world feel safe and comfortable in the water. Many of these students might have not seen water ever in their life or might not be that uh, familiar with swimming. It's a very important life-saving skill and that kind of gave us the idea that we would like to offer students who come to TRU and to Kamloops uh, something like this. Sadly, in recent years, two TRU students have passed away in water-related deaths. We've had a drowning in 2019 of a TRU student in the, the Kamloops River, um, and then also in 2021, a TRU student drowned near uh, Salmon Arm. And so this is a way that we can have a direct impact on uh, people's lives at TRU and also in our community. So that's the one where I'm on my front, my face is in the water, I'm doing flooded kicks, and my arms are coming above the water and I'm pulling the water underneath. So we wanted to make sure that those kind of unfortunate incidents don't happen, or at least try our best. Um, and this program was definitely something that was um, more focused towards filling those gaps. The lessons are put on at cost for the city of Kamloops, ensuring there are minimal barriers for the students. I always wanted to learn swimming, so this was a good opportunity for me to, as a student, to just come in and learn some basics at least, so I'm pretty confident enough right now. It's been like five or six years I've been never been into a swimming pool also. So it was like uh, since even winter is coming here, so need to keep uh, our body warm. This is the second round of lessons that have been put on, and with Trusu having a large wait list, 
The city expects the program to stick around for a long time. And we look forward to having uh, this as a permanent program in the future. Michael Reeves, CFJC News. Still ahead, Barry's here with sports. Lots of NFL playoff action today. The Detroit Lions doing something they haven't done in decades. The highlights coming up. Some dramatics in the oh, NFL today. And the NFL uh, delivered on the hype today, that's for sure. Thanks, Travis. Well, they are two of the best quarterbacks in the NFL, but Patrick Mahomes' playoff resume is a lot more impressive than Josh Allen's. Mahomes, in just his seventh NFL season, has already been to the Super Bowl three times. He's won it twice. Josh Allen still looking for his first Super Bowl appearance. Today in Buffalo, Allen would have to beat Mahomes and the Chiefs if he hopes to get to Vegas and Super Bowl 58 in three weeks. Amazing fact, Patrick Mahomes has played 15 playoff games, had never played one on the road, 12 at home, three neutral site Super Bowls, but first time today in Buffalo, at least Taylor Swift was there to cheer him on. Early second, tied at three. Bills knocking on the door. Josh Allen runs it in for the five-yard touchdown. 17th rush TD regular season and playoffs combined for Allen. 10-3 Buffalo. But the Chiefs take their first lead late in the half. Mahomes to Travis Kelsey, who really didn't produce a whole lot down the stretch. But it's time for the playoffs and he's big 22 yards there 15th career TD connection in the playoffs for Mahomes and Kelsey tying Brady and Gronkowski for most all time 13 10 Taylor celebrates and yes brother Jason Kelsey who just retired he may have had a beer or two just in the last minute I mean but before the half it's Allen again just a big train hard to stop six foot five 240 pounds plows his way in 17 13 at the half but this one was just getting started back and forth they went Mahomes to Kelsey one more time on the opening drive of the third quarter just gets in for the TD and apparently another chug beer for Kelsey in the background there. She's back in front 2017, but the Bills punch right back. Third and goal from the 13, Josh Allen. What a dart to Khalil Shakir. Great pass and catch. Bills back on top 24-20, but not for long. The Chiefs drive the field. Isaiah Pacheco from four yards out. KC back in front, 27-24, fifth lead change of the game. All right, we're in the dying moments of the fourth. A minute 47 to go. Tyler Bass in to tie it, but he misses. Boy, Scott Norwood's a ghost of field goals missed past in the playoffs, and the Bills fall 27-24. The Chiefs are moving on to Baltimore for the AFC championship. Now, earlier in the NFC, Jared Goff and the Lions hosting Tampa Bay. First time ever, the Lions have played two home playoff games in a postseason. Second quarter, Goff to Josh Reynolds, his former LA Ram teammate. 10-3, Lions with the lead. Now 17-10, Detroit in the third. But here come Baker Mayfield and the Buccaneers. Third and 10, perfect play call. Mayfield dumps it off to Rashad White, races in for the TD, and we're tied at 17. Fourth quarter, Lions respond quickly to that score. Jameer Gibbs will just burst through, and he's gone. 31-yard touchdown gallop, and Detroit back on top, 24-17. And then on their next possession, it's Goff one more time to Amon Ross St. Brown. Lions scored TDs on three straight possessions. They're up 14-31-17, but no quit in the Bucks. Baker Mayfield to Mike Evans zips it in there. 
for his top receiver who brings it down. They went for two and missed, but still within one score at 31-23. And the Bucks get the ball back with under two minutes to go. They have a long way to go, but Mayfield has the time. Over the middle he goes, but this time it is picked off by linebacker Derek Barnes. A good time for his first ever NFL interception, and the Detroit Lions win at 31-23. They advance to the NFC Championship game for the first time since 1991, and they will meet the 49ers in San Francisco next Sunday. Quite a Sunday of NFL football. The Edmonton Oilers will make it official tomorrow, but they have signed veteran forward Corey Perry for the remainder of the season. Perry and the Blackhawks mutually agreed to part ways earlier this season after an alcohol-fueled incident off the ice for Perry. Perry says he's doing personal work on himself. He's apologized to the team and his teammates at 38. He's still, though, a very useful player and will give the Oilers some grit and scoring on their bottom six. Perry has played 196 career playoff games. Now, Corey Perry's former team, the Blackhawks, visit Rogers Arena tomorrow night. It was supposed to be Connor Bedard's much-anticipated homecoming, but of course he is out with a broken jaw for at least another month, so that is unfortunate. It's the Hawks' only visit to Vancouver this season. Canucks enjoying a day off. They continue to lead the overall standings with 66 points. NHL tonight, Patrick Waugh making his debut behind the Islanders' bench just hired yesterday, replacing Lane Lambert. Isles home to the Dallas Stars. Isles get an early one off the rush. Matt Barzell to Alexander Romanov. He fires short side. 1-0 Isles, and it's now 2-2 in the third as they look to get Patrick Waugh his first win. Check out the AHL uh, scoreboard. Just a final out of Abbotsford as uh, Jet Wu had a two-goal game as Abbotsford beat San Diego by the final of 5-2. This afternoon, Western Hockey League, Giants hosting the Kelowna Rockets at the Langley Events Center, tied 1-1 in the first. Mazden Leslie shot blocked, but he stays with it, ends up jamming it in the open side, 2-1 Vancouver. It stayed that way into the third. Ty Halliburta is wide, but Ty Thorpe right there for the carom off the backboards. Giants win this one 4-2 over the Rockets. Well, a chance for history on the PGA Tour today at the American Express in Palm Springs. That is 20-year-old amateur Nick Dunlap trying to become the first amateur since Phil Mickelson to win a PGA Tour event since 1991. First, we will show you Adam Hadwin. He'll make the birdie here. Gets to 23 under. Adam in the mix. Started the day tied for fifth. Remember, this is the tournament he shot his 59 at seven years ago. Hadwin again at the 10th. And uh, he makes another birdie. He finished tied for fifth at or sixth rather at 24 under, cashed another big check, 311,000 US dollars. Meanwhile, Dunlap made an early double, lost the lead, but then he will make the birdie here at 16. Ty Sam Burns for the lead at 29 under, so the nerves are a big deal. On the tee box at 17, Burns, who already has five career PGA wins, well, he's the one who blinks because a big mistake, finds the water, made double bogey, and Sam Burns is out of it. Back to Dunlap. He needs to make a par on 18 to get the win. He's got a one-shot lead. Well, how about a six-footer for history? He does it. Wow, what nerve. As an amateur, he does not get any of the money, which would have been 1.5 million U.S., but he gets the trophy, and he has time to decide if he wants to turn pro and get the two-year exemption for winning. Nick Dunlap, we will hear from him a lot. 
in the future. Meanwhile, in Orlando, Florida, LPGA Tournament of Champions. Canada's Brooke Henderson won this tournament last year, had the low round of the day today, a four under 68 in cold and windy conditions in Orlando. No win this year, but solo third, won 120,000. She finished at 10 under, but Lydia Ko of New Zealand took this thing wire to wire. Really nice shot out of the penalty area on the par five, which led to a birdie for Lydia, and uh, she didn't win at all in 2023, but starts 2024 with a win at the Tournament of Champions. 14 under is her winning score. And we'll finish with some soccer, English Premiership, Liverpool at Burnmouth. Scoreless opening half, but Liverpool come out firing early in the second half. Beautiful setup for Darwin Nunez, his first of two on the night. 1-0 Liverpool, and then Diogo Jota down the right side, drills it short side. He also had two goals. Liverpool in a romp, 4-0 the final. Reds with 49 points have a five-point lead atop Man City, Arsenal, and Aston Villa. That is it for sports. Unbelievable, that Dunlap story. Uh, yeah, that's amazing as an amateur. But doesn't get the one and a half I know, million. But he had to money. make that decision before the tournament. He can't just say if you win, oh, okay, uh, I'll take the money now. So they yeah, have I'm, rules I'm, in place. I'm sure he'll be making some money yeah, he, on the course I soon. think he'll be all yeah. right. Here. All right. Thanks. After the break, the homecoming for a music prodigy from Prince George. Prince George native Jonathan Crow will be back in his hometown in February, performing live at the Knox Performance Centre. Crow is currently the concertmaster for the Toronto Symphony Orchestra, one of Canada's most well-respected musical institutions. His return to Prince George represents a full circle since it was a concert by the Toronto Symphony in Prince George that ignited his passion for classical music. When I was in Prince George, I think in 1988, the Toronto Symphony came and toured. They're doing a Northern Canada tour and they came and played in Vanier Hall. And I remember going to that concert ages ago. So for me to kind of be concertmaster of that orchestra, it was one of the things that started me on my path to become a professional musician. February's performance will include a mix of classical and contemporary violin sounds. Crow says the pieces he chose for his homecoming performance will be easily enjoyed by the audience. A Tumblr Ridge man has been named Canadian Geographic Photographer of the Year, a huge honour after countless journeys into the wild. Today on This is BC, Jay Durant introduces us to Brandon Broderick. It takes a keen eye and an incredible amount of patience. It's hours and hours of time out looking for these animals. You just keep going and going and eventually you get a, a pretty incredible encounter that could last 30 seconds, it could last two hours. For the past 15 years, Brandon Broderick has traveled to some remote parts of the province looking for that perfect shot. There, there are lots of failures, but I learned from all of them. Fine-tuning a talent that has just landed him the Canadian Geographic Photographer of the Year Award. It is nice to be recognized for, for all the hard work that goes into this. I just saw a, a beaver sitting on the edge of the ice, so I'm trying to sneak up on it. I'd like to do more photo tours. I, I, I hope it, it gives me a bit more credibility when I'm, you know, approaching, you know, trying to get clients, you know, to, to join me on, on tours. Bit closer. I don't think I can cross his ice. Okay. Capturing those rare moments, locking eyes in a short staring contest. I just love them. It really brings you into the, to the photo and connects you to the, to the animal. 
while still giving his subjects plenty of space. I just do whatever I need to to, to get the shot and not, not affect the animal at all. Especially the bigger animals, which means never straying too far from the car. If that bear that I'm about to take photos of just got in a, a fight with another bear and I don't know what kind of headspace that bear's in. That's another benefit to having the vehicle close by. I will shoot from inside the vehicle sometimes. Last year, he was runner-up. Now Broderick has finally won the award that he hopes will open up even more opportunities to continue the search for those unforgettable encounters. Every once in a while, in the moment, you know it's it's something really special. So those, those are what I do this for. I don't even know how to describe the feeling. It's just, it's special. Jay Durant, Global News. If you know someone who has a great story to tell or something unique to BC that people need to know about, email your ideas to jay at thisisbc at globalnews.ca. Some beautiful shots there. Some good shots. I love the wildlife stuff, although I like to stay back because you don't want to get too close. I was going to say, saying, you know. I imagine he's using a pretty long lens. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Good night.